Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Coming to you from Classic City, the capital of the Bulldog Nation, it's time for another edition of the podcast designed for the most die-hard Georgia fans in the country. Here are your hosts, Tyler and Curtis. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another edition of the Glory UGA podcast. Brought to you by our good friends at MyBookie, where you can go today. MyBookie.ag, that is the site. Use the promo code UGA to double your very first deposit. Bet anything, anytime, anywhere with MyBookie. I'm Tyler, and here with me, as he is each and every Sunday night to recap our games, is my co-host, Curtis. And guys, I am fired up tonight. My voice... I mean, you can hear it. It is what it is. It was not in recording shape last night after that game. So I've been on that honey and lemon tea diet the past 24 hours, trying to get it there. Been in the four of the fight of my life. And it's uh, it's close enough. It's close enough now. We'll give it a shot. But there was no way in hell I was missing this episode. I've waited too long for this one. I was looking forward to getting on here, guys, and talking about a Georgia victory. So there's no way that wasn't going to happen. You know that we do try to keep this uh, a family-friendly podcast because you never know. You never know who's listening. We don't want to offend anybody out there. Any kids might be listening. So I'm going to do my best to keep it that way today. But I just got to warn y'all, I am fired up, man. So just a fair warning in case something might or might not slip out at some point during, during today's show. But Curtis, obviously, my friend, we have a lot to talk about in terms of how we were able to completely shut down the greatest offense in the history of the known universe, at least, of course, according to Tennessee fans and the national media members who had bought in hook, line, and sinker over the last week or two, maybe the last month or so. But I, I've got to start here, man. I know we're talking a lot of football, but we got to start here. You and I, Curtis, have been doing this a long time, man. Going back to 2015 was the first year that we started this podcast. So we've been covering the Georgia Bulldogs as co-hosts of this podcast for eight seasons now. And so when when, when you run a podcast, a, a team-specific podcast, you follow things pretty closely, right? Doesn't mean you know everything. Doesn't mean you get everything right, but you're pretty dialed in. And even before we started this podcast, obviously we were massive Georgia fans like all of you out there. So we followed this stuff very closely for really our entire lifetimes, more or less. So we've seen a lot of big games, a lot of lead-ups to big games, but I honestly do not think I have ever heard one single fan base talk as much junk as the Tennessee fans did over the course of this past week. I mean, not even just this, definitely this week. They were 
out of control this week, but really the past month. But I mean, honestly, Curtis, there's just comically absurd levels of arrogance and delusion. And of course, when you get a win over the number one ranked team in the country, it's an incredible feeling on its own for what it means for the team and our goals moving forward. But on a more primal level, because I mean, let's be real, rivalries are a big part of what makes college football such a special entity. How satisfying was this win for you? I think it was very satisfying. And I think the reason I enjoyed it the most is kind of what it says about the long-term goal and like what Kirby Smart has built here. And I think that's what I've enjoyed the most is like when you think back to when LSU won the national championship and then they followed it up the next year kind of struggling. And says so I think while winning the national championship is one of the hardest things in college football to do, I think for the teams that are there, I think after that you have to think like the next step is how do we get back there? How do we stay at that level? And I think seeing a win like this and um, the way the team responded kind of makes you feel good. And in fact, you're thinking like, okay, this is more. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we, we had that huge performance week one against Oregon, but our schedule really hasn't been, I mean, let's be honest, man, it, it hasn't been that daunting since that point. And everybody and their brother, especially with the college playoff uh, rankings coming out for the first time last week, those initial rankings, are just trying to find a way to kind of discount that win and poke holes in it and say, oh, well, Oregon wasn't you know really ready. It was their first game. It's not the same Oregon offense, not the same Oregon team, this and that. And so we were kind of left wondering, like, okay, well, maybe is what they're saying kind of true? Like, is there something to it? And then you come out and you see a performance like that, and it's just like, it's like, okay, all right, maybe maybe we can do this. Maybe. Maybe we can actually do this. But, I mean, even just going back to the Tennessee fans, girls, like, how how awesome was it to see – I mean, you were there in the stands. I mean, they were dead silent the entire game. Even when they scored that touchdown, that garbage touchdown late in the game, I looked over at their section – and they were not remotely celebrating. How satisfying was it to you to see to kind of see our team basically just shut up that entire fan base after all the shit they talked this past week? It was extremely satisfying. I think the, one of the biggest reasons I enjoyed it so much also was all week you heard how Tennessee was going to have you know fifteen to twenty thousand. It felt like it's yeah. the numbers you were hearing fans in the stadium, and then you walk in and it was maybe half that, and yeah. then just not. So you heard all that, heard that all week about how they were going to pack out Sanford, and then the ones that did make the trip just to shut them up and give them nothing to cheer about other than that first drive. Um, the rest of the game, you kind of, we took them completely out of it. Yeah. And look, guys, I know there's a lot of actual football to talk about. And I promise you're going to get there, but I've had a lot of questions over the last 24 hours from people who weren't in the stadium and were in Athens this weekend, kind of asking like what it was like, what was, what was the environment like, how many Tennessee fans were there? So we just want to give you a kind of the, kind of set the stage there for what it was like. But I, I mean, Curtis, I, I totally agree with you. I mean, we heard all week, Long, I mean, to the point where I was even putting PSAs out here on the podcast saying, hey, if you got tickets to this game, you want to sell them, I get it. I can't tell you what to do with your, with your tickets and your money. That's fine. If you want to make money, I get it. But please try to find Georgia fans to sell it too. Even I was kind of like semi-worried, like how many Tennessee fans are going to be in this in this stadium? But I went out for actually like right after work on Friday, got out downtown around 5 o'clock, and I was expecting to see a lot of orange all over downtown, Curtis. Nah, man, like the restaurant I was in, the bars, I, I mean, I, I saw maybe like five total. Like, I, I swear to God, like five total. And I was looking, I was trying to count. And then Saturday, um, I went to run um, through downtown, through Millage, all that stuff. And again, expecting to see a lot of orange, a lot of orange flags on cars. Nah, man, I, I'm a, a smattering, a handful here and there. Go out, you know, tailgating, go downtown pregame. No, I mean, I mean, Curtis, they just weren't there. 
I mean, there were Tennessee fans there, but really no more than like your average typical SEC game, like a big SEC environment here in, in Sanford Stadium. I mean, yeah, their their section, their low level visitor section was was full, which is that's pretty standard. But there wasn't any sort of takeover. I mean, it, it was insane. Like all the junk they were talking, and then to see them get beat down like that, and then not support their team on the road the way that they were alleging they were going to support. It's just comical, man. It's just it's funny to me, honestly. Um, I, I I will say I got fired up during the week because they were wilding out on social media. And fans do that. I mean, every fan base does that. But I mean, you saw curse. Was wasn't this like? Would you say this is a level that was beyond comparison, at least in the past couple of years? Yes, it all started, you know, after they beat Bama, and since then it's kind of just been like actually, relentless, I I, I, relentless. I say it started after they beat LSU. Okay, that's probably better. True, it's, it, that because yeah, they saw it as a big road win, and it yeah. kind of uh, it just it got louder and louder. Yeah, it was the fever pitch after Alabama, and I mean, they were convinced, like they they were convinced that not only were they going to come here and win this game, they were. They they could not conceive any possibility they could possibly lose this game. You know what I mean? Like it was inconceivable to them. And then for us to come out and beat the hell out of them the way that we did, and to do that to a team and a fan base that I harbor so much hatred towards, uh, extraordinarily satisfying. But yes, it was a fantastic environment. I loved every second of it. Again, not as many Tennessee fans as they wanted you to believe there were. Not at all. Um, speaking of environment, Curtis, how would you rate the environment inside Sanford Stadium on Saturday night? I mean, honestly, I feel like words don't do it justice. Um yeah, I mean, if you were in there, especially come third down and fourth down when we were making plays, um, I mean, I couldn't even hear myself think. Um, I know it, people have said that before, just like how loud a stadium gets, but I've never have been in a, in a um, situation where it's just that loud. Yeah, I mean, you can hear my voice. It, it's getting better. It's getting there. I'm hoping it doesn't fade as we continue on this podcast. But, I mean, I, I always scream. I always yell. I always cheer. Um, I'm probably – I try not to be too obnoxious about it. I try to do it with respect. But, you know, I'm always I'm always going at it, man. But I went at it myself personally at a level that I've never gone. I mean, I was screaming at the top of my lungs every single snap that Tennessee had the ball to the point that I was seeing stars. I mean, some of you that, are in, in this, that have been to games before, you know what I'm talking about. When you just scream so much without breathing, like you're just like – you get like lightheaded and you're like seeing stars – that was me, all right? So, I mean, I know – and I wasn't the only one doing that. Everyone around me was doing that. And I, I've been to every single Georgia football game since going up when I was in college. So, what was this, going back to uh, 2004? Um, and I've been in a lot of great environments. The blackout, the Auburn blackout in 2007 when the team came out in the black after warming up in the red, insane. Notre Dame in 2018, insane. LSU, South Carolina in 2013, insane. Some of those South Carolina games when Spurrier was there, Insane. I mean, we there there were some there's been some huge matchups in San. I mean, Auburn. I mean, not Auburn. Uh, Kentucky and Arkansas last year. I mean, even Auburn in like 2016, late in that season with the, the most Smith interception game. I mean, there have been some really loud moments in Sanford Stadium. This surpasses all of them. And honestly, I hate saying this phrase because it's overused, but I'm going to use it anyway because it just fits. It wasn't even close. You know, like it just wasn't even close. So. I think that the, obviously the team, the, the coaches answered the bell, but I think the fans answered the bell and did their part as well. So I was proud of the fan base, proud of the team, proud of the coaches. It was just awesome, man. absolutely awesome. But we've got a ton of actual football to talk about, and we will do that for the rest of the podcast. But before we get there, I just want to quickly remind you guys about my bookie. The college football season, it truly pains me to say that. But we are now in the last month of the regular season, at least the college football regular season. But that doesn't mean 
that there are, are not opportunities for you guys to still make some money using your football knowledge and putting that to the test with my book. You got the rest of the regular season. We got conference championship season. You got bowl season. There's still plenty of money to be made. Hey, NFL as well. You can always make some money bet on NFL football. So make sure to take advantage of this promo code while it lasts. Use the code UGA when you sign up for a brand new account at mybookie.ag and they will hook you up with a 100% sign-up bonus on that initial deposit. Bet anything, anytime, anywhere with my bookie. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. All right, Curtis, let's do this, man. Let's turn our attention to the field and the game itself. This defense, Curtis. Honestly, man, I'm just going to ask you straight up. Was this the best single game defensive performance of the Kirby Smart era? I mean, it's hard to argue against that, especially what they were facing coming into the game. And then you just like when you look at their, what they were doing all season to what we did against them in that game, I think it's just astonishing. I mean, of course, the narrative of this Tennessee offense, I mean, literally the, the best offense that I've ever seen in, in my life, and at least I can remember was the LSU offense in 2019. And you've heard all week, or for a couple of weeks now, about people comparing comparing this Tennessee offense in 2022 to the 2019 LSU offense, saying, like, are, are, are they at that level? Even I, like, entertained it. I was looking at the numbers, and the numbers, like, it's actually not that far off statistically. But I, I, what I, my point was, I just think that I don't think they have the players, the personnel that LSU had with Jefferson and Chase and Burrow and Clyde Edwards-Alaire, all those kind of guys. But statistically, productive-wise, they they were, I mean, they pretty close from a statistical standpoint. So with that narrative coming into this game and for us to completely, Curtis, completely shut them down. And they had, what, three points that we gave them on the opening possession after that fumble by Dejan Edwards. And then you have a garbage time touchdown late in the game. But they could not sustain or do anything against this defense, Curtis. I mean, we came into this game with an epic matchup, right? It's the best offense in, in the country, not just the SEC, but in the country, and then the, the best defense in the league, maybe not as dominant as it was last year, but the best defense still in the SEC this year. Something had to give Curtis, and that something was Tennessee's soul. They came into this game averaging 553 yards a game. We held them to 289 total yards, almost half of their 
average yardage output per game. They came into this game averaging 49 points a game. We held them to 13, gave them three on that fumble and a garbage time touchdown late. That's still, even with that, that's three and a half times less than they normally score in every other game. They are they were first in country coming this game, averaging 7.4 yards per play. We held them to 3.8 yards per play, almost half of what they're averaging in every other game. Curtis coming into this game, all right. What is the last six games leading into this game here um, yesterday? Tennessee put up 676 yards, 576 yards, 602 yards, 567 yards, 696 yards, 422, and then 289. One of those is not like the other. So, Kurt, how were we able to do this? How were we able to completely stifle what was the consensus best offense in the country? And I even would have agreed with that coming into this game. Um, I think it was twofold. First off, we weren't going to give up the big play. I mean, there was a couple times that guys got open that Hooker couldn't complete complete uh, deep ball, but that kind of goes where the twofold was, where we created pressure. Um, people always want to talk about our sack rate number, um, but I think if you look at our pressure number, and um, this was the first time I really feel like we played an opponent who tried to hold on to the ball and make the deep play happen, and that's what truly allowed us to feast for the defensive line. Um, and then I think when it came to our secondaries, we didn't want to give up the big play, and I thought we – did a good job of countering how uh, Tennessee will stack the receivers, try to get them free releases. Yeah. I mean, that was one of my worries coming to the game was that, I mean, the way that they first off spread the receivers with their splits and the way they stack them and you just can't get your hands on them off the line of scrimmage and they run free. And we saw them do that to great effect against Alabama. And so there was certainly, as I said all last week, a level of concern for me, how we were going to play them, how we we're going to handle them. I thought that we could have some answers in our coverages. Um, I, I really like the idea of matchup courts, which we played some of in this game. Um, but it, it, it was certainly a concern coming in this game. But you're exactly right. I think what we did more than anything is what we just simply didn't play in their hands. I think it's the way that I would say, it. you know, I, I, I told you guys last week coming into the game, I, I felt this game, if you really want to boil it down, to its like most basic form was going to be about who was going to force their opponent to play their game. Because these are two teams, two offenses that are almost not quite equally as productive, but pretty damn close to it. I mean, we were number, they were number one, we were number two until offense coming to this game. And no one want to talk about that, but we just did it in different ways, right? Like we have different games and, and we just, we operate in a different manner. And so it was all about to me, who was going to force the opponent to play their game. And I mean, the answer is pretty clear at this point, right? I mean, we were, as you said, Curtis, we were 100% committed to not giving them layups. And that's what I told you guys on the on the preview episode last week is come hell or high water, we had to keep a too high safety show. We could not start rolling safeties in the box because that's when they that's what they want you to do. When you do that, you are playing into their hands. They will run the ball and run the ball and run the ball and run the ball on you, and they will try to get you to roll those safeties down, and that's when they hit the kill shots over the top. And Bama played in their hands. Fortunately, we have better coaches now, Bama does. I'm just going to say it. We do. Better coaching staff, uh, assistant coaches. Honestly, at this point, I know he's got more – National Championship or whatever, give me Kirby Smart all day over Nick Saban. Right now, right now, give me Kirby Smart all day over Nick Saban. But we just – we would not play into their hands. We forced them to give – to grind their way down the field. I mean, guys, against Alabama, I went back and counted it up. Tennessee had five touchdown drives against Bama of five plays or less. Three touchdown drives against Bama of three plays or less. They did not come close to touching that in this game because we were committed to not letting it happen. We kept everything in front of us and – on top of that, I mean, if you keep everything in front of you, that's great, but you got to tackle. And we tackled our 
asses off in this game. We brought pressure largely from the middle of the defense. I told you guys coming this week that where he really or Hooker really struggled was pressure in his face. That's why getting Jalen Carter back was so big for us in this game. We saw that play a massive role, bringing pressure to the linebackers from the interior. We also worked in some stuff on the outside. You can't just be too predictable. We brought Javon Bullard a couple of times on the exact same blitz, and they just couldn't figure it out. They could not see it. They couldn't figure it out and answer to that. And um, we just we brought we brought the pain to them, man. I mean, we absolutely did. How did you feel about? I mean, honestly, Curtis, coming into the game, how did you feel we were gonna match up with their run game? I thought that that was probably gonna be the biggest. I thought we were gonna do all right with them. I just wasn't sure how we were gonna do because I mean, you notice it. They spread you out so much, and that is what creates a lot of lanes in the run game. And so I wasn't sure that we were going to at least slow them down enough going into the game. And I think that's a fair concern, Curtis. I mean, when you look at their rushing numbers, I'm going to go back and read these numbers for you guys. So, so this is going back from the beginning of the year to where we are now. So game one against Ball State, 218 yards. Pitt week two, 91 yards. Then 238, then 227, then 263, then 182, then 201, then 177, and then this week, 94 yards rushing. We're the only the second team so far this year on their schedule has held them under 100 yards rushing. And it just so happens that the other team, Pitt, that held them under 100 yards rushing. Now, we actually were more efficient. They held them to 2.6 yards per rush. We held them to 2.2 yards per rush. It just so happens, though, that game against Pitt, Curtis, you know, that that's the game that went overtime, right? Almost lost yeah. that game at Pitt. So what I, I bring that up to highlight the fact that this Tennessee running game is really what drives their offense. People don't look at it that way because they see Jalen Hyatt and Cedric Tillman just running wide open down the field against Alabama and LSU for these huge explosive passing plays, but it doesn't happen without the run game. I mean, Curtis, you saw them. I mean, I have people in the stands. I've had people send me, you know, questions on social media in the last 24 hours. Why was Tennessee running the ball uh, down two scores with under four minutes to go in the game? Well, the answer to that question is simple, guys, because they have to for their offense to work. People don't realize this. Tennessee runs the ball 57% of the time. People have this conception that there's this air raid offense that throws the ball 75% of the time. That's not how this works. They run it 57% of the time. Those layups are created when you cannot stop the run. You get impatient like Alabama did, roll the safeties down, and get murdered through the air. And we did not play in that. And on top of that, we were able to, for the most part, they had a few runs here and there it's late in the game, but for the most part, we were able to stop the running game with even numbers in the box, which allowed us to play coverage in the back end and maintain that structural integrity and not allow them to create those layup opportunities. I mean, guys, we held them to 94 yards rushing on 42 attempts. We held Hendon Hooker, who's dangerous with his legs, to less than one yard per rush. Dude had 18 rushes. Now, obviously, some sacks in there as well, but 17 total yards. I mean, it's just absolutely unbelievable performance. And to me, the success stopping this Tennessee offense, yes, you've got to give our DBs credit. They played their asses off out there in coverage. There were some penalties, sure. But, I mean, we covered the way. Honestly, Curtis, I wasn't sure to be able to cover those guys that well. And we did. But none of that really happens without the ability to stop the run the way that we did. And, Curtis, let me ask you this, too. Did you notice Tennessee late in the game when they're down multiple scores huddling? Did you notice that? I did. It was actually kind of odd to see the, yeah, the, the tempo, they, they kind of went away from the tempo there late in the game with down multiple scores. I have a theory on why that is, but in your mind, why did you see Tennessee kind of go away from their tempo offense, which is what their offense, you know, it's, I don't want to say it's built on that, but it's a big feature of their offense late in the game when they're down multiple scores and they got to score. Why, why do you think they did that? 
I don't know. I was kind of perplexed by it. Um, I thought maybe they were just trying to get us out of our, um, get us on our heels and not being able to react so quickly because we were kind of just staying in the same defensive uh, scheme most of the game. Yeah, I get two I, for sure. That could that could definitely be it. I got two theories on this. I'm gonna get your thoughts on it. Number one, I just think they were they got winded. Their offensive line. That's the thing with this offense, Curtis. When you have to run tempo all game like that, you got a bunch of. Uh, I'm just speaking. They got big dudes. Okay, let's just say big dudes on the offensive line. Not in the best shape, right? Not best cardiovascular shape. They were winded, man. When they would call timeouts or TV timeouts, you could see their offensive linemen were hunched over at the waist. They were hands on hips. Those guys were dead tired, and our guys were not. They were not. We were a better conditioned football team. That's crazy to say when you're talking about a team that runs tempo the way that they do. I mean, for a living, that's what they do. We were a I honestly I believe that we are a more conditioned team in this game. Those offensive linemen were flat dead late in the game. And I think that's a big part of why they went to um, the kind of a huddle offense at times in the second half, late in the second half when they were down multiple scores, because their offensive linemen couldn't they just simply couldn't do their jobs if they were that winded. And I think so that plus the crowd. I think the crowd was affecting, obviously, how their offense worked. We saw, was it eight, I want to say, Curtis? Was it eight pre-snap penalties on them? I think seven or eight. Seven Seven or eight. eight. I can't remember the exact number, but it's between six and eight, something like that. And obviously, that was having an effect on their offense. And and that split second when you're on the road and you have to – you're going to like a silent count when you're just clapping. We were able to time that up. And that's one of the reasons we were able to be so effective against the against the offensive line and bringing a pass rush and getting after Hendon Hooker. Six sacks. We had ten sacks all year coming this game, coming in, and we had uh, six in this one game. So, <laughs> I mean, that's a hell of an effort. But I think the crowd certainly helped that there. I just think that they weren't able to function the way they normally do with that crowd noise. So, Eric Ames, you know, I'm just putting it out there, man. I, I think it might have affected your team. I think it might have. So, just something I noticed there. I, I, I do think that affected the game and the fact that they were just tired and worn out, and we were not. I mean, I, I do think that was a big impact on how this ultimately happened. But, I mean, I'll go back to my first question on the defense curse. I, I do think – I mean, I've been trying to rack my brain here for the last 24 hours. Was there a better single-game defensive performance? I mean, Curtis, I, and we were 2-6 and six against top-10 offenses, top-10 scoring offenses in the Kirby Smart era coming to this game. I mean, the, yeah, we beat Oklahoma, but Oklahoma put up 40-plus points, right? I mean, yeah, we, we beat Alabama last year, but I think this is a better performance – Honestly, I mean, you consider the narrative here, um, and they were pretty much at full health. So, yeah, I, I will say I think this is the best single defensive performance in the Kirby Smart era. I mean, just an absolute masterpiece of a defensive effort. All right, Curtis, let's keep this thing rolling here, man. So we talked a lot about the defense, deservedly so, but the matchup coming to this game that no Tennessee fan or national media member really wanted to discuss was the Georgia offense versus the Tennessee defense. As far as I was concerned coming to this game, there were there were three elite units coming in, and we had two of them. The perception of our offense is antiquated and held back by Kirby Smart. I mean, Curtis, that still persists in corners of the college football world. That's still out there. We all know that's not true, but there are people, there are fan bases, there are national media members who do this for a living who – just, it's hard to believe because they actually have no clue what they're talking about. But they still believe that's true. They still spew the same narrative. Now, the final numbers were not stellar, but we did enough in the first half to get the job done. We ended up with 387 total yards, 6.2 yards per play, 257 through the air, 130 tough physical yards on the ground. What did you make of the overall offensive game plan and effort in this game? So I think if you take out once the rain started and we kind of went into more of a ground and pound to try to just let the clock run. 
I think it was a honestly a very complete offensive attack. I think if anything, the only time we were stopped is when we stopped ourselves. And I think it all started with us winning at the line of scrimmage. That was a big key for us, Curtis. I mean, I, that was another thing. It's, you know, going back to what I said earlier, you know, about which team was going to be able to force their opponent into playing their game. And a big part of that for us, forcing Tennessee to play our game, was being able to control the line of scrimmage on both sides of the ball. And I certainly felt that we did that. You know, uh, I think our offensive line, especially in the first half, came out and we were we were tough. We were physical. We were getting movement. Um, defensive line was just so good all game long, creating havoc and pressure on Hinton Hooker. Even when we didn't sack him, we were in his face. We were affecting him, which we've really kind of done all year. But, you know, offensively especially, I thought that we really did a great job controlling a Tennessee defense. And Kurt, they are very aggressive. Their game plan defensively, like this is just what they do. Their way of life is they are very aggressive, selling out to stop the run. They play a lot of man-free coverage in the back end. They leave their safeties on, they leave their corners and safeties on islands, and they're not that good to begin with. And my theory coming to the game was they do that because they're just trying to force the issue and get you to play their game plan, get into a shootout with them. And they, they're just gambling that you aren't going to be able to win a shootout with them. They won't get the ball back to their offense. They stop you, they stuff you for a loss, or they or you get a score and they get their and their offense gets the ball back either way, right? Well, I thought that we did a really, really, really good job against the Tennessee defense that does sell out, that does roll. They were rolling safety down the box from like the first snap of the game, Curtis. And we were able to handle that. I mean, we were getting outnumbered in the box at times, and we were still able to get movement and create enough room for our running game to at least, you know, it wasn't a dominant running game, 130 yards, I mean, a little over three yards per carry. But we did a great job of grinding that out after we got that big leading and kind of just, you know, chewing clock and and getting through this game. But I love, Curtis, what I love probably most about what we did on offense is we came out, you know, what Kirby's talked about for years now, we want to be the hunters, right? We don't want to be the hunted. And I felt we came out hunting in this game. Did you get that feeling on offense, Curtis? I did. Yeah. Um, especially, I mean, out, yeah, we had the fumble in the first drive that killed us, but realistically, um, uh, we were the ones, um, like you said, we were, we are the ones dictating it and taking it to them. I mean, even when our guys were catching the ball, we were like, like our, the guys with the balls in the hands were the ones laying the hits. Yeah, I mean, we came out throwing haymakers. Like, you know, we I, I was watching – I've watched uh, – obviously watched it live, and I had a chance to go back and watch it one time through. I'll watch it again tomorrow. Um, but Gary Danielson, I'm not sure you guys heard this, talking about how Tennessee was just throwing jabs, throwing jabs. Well, they were only throwing jabs because we only allowed them to throw jabs first off as we were talking about the defense. But we weren't throwing jabs. You know, like we, we threw a, a few, you know, some running plays here and there. I guess you can call those jabs. But we came out throwing haymakers too, man. Tennessee really didn't have any haymakers to throw. We were throwing haymakers, and I loved – seeing us take some of those shots as you and I Curtis and we're not alone in this but we have talked all season long about and we've got a lot of questions from listeners about this so certainly we're not alone in this but we've 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 been concerned to a degree about our ability to force to to actually be able to push the ball vertically down the field the fact is we have not been as explosive in the passing game as we were even last year and I know A.D. Mitchell's been out and Lab McConkey's been banged up um, but that has been a, a concern of mine over the past couple of weeks because you know, I knew that we we're going to play a team like Tennessee that was going to sell out against the run, and we're going to have to find a way to make them pay for that. Like that was my question: Are we going to be able to make teams pay? When we face a defense because Tennessee was a really good; they were the number two rush defense in the SEC coming to this game. That's what they're good at defensively, and that's largely because they sell out against the run. But I had the question: 
when we face a team that does that and can maybe slow down our run game, can we beat teams on the outside? And we haven't been hitting those shots. Like we've had some there that they've been dropped or Stetson slightly missed them here and there, but it hasn't been in sync. So to see us be able to hit those plays, I think Stetson was three of five for 130, 138 yards, a touchdown on 20 or more, our passes of 20 or more yards down the field. We, we haven't been that effective in any single game all year on those kind of balls. So to see us come out taking those shots early and hitting those shots, and the, the catch by Arian Smith, who, God, what a, a sight for sore eyes to see Arian Smith get involved. I've been begging for because, you know, right now we do have an issue at time. We still do. I mean, lag can, get, lag can create separation on his own. You saw that with the double move. Some of the other receivers have trouble creating consistent separation on their own against man coverage. Arian is a guy that can solve that problem. He hasn't been obviously hasn't been healthy for most of his career. He's missed a lot of, of developmental time. But I've just been like longing to see him out there more because at the very least, he's a guy that with his speed can create separation. And we saw that. His 52-yard catch in the first half was the longest catch by a wide receiver for our team all year long. So you love to see that. Um, and here's the thing, Curtis, you know, it was almost like a tale of two halves, right? The first half and the second half. And I know the final numbers weren't stellar, 387 total yards and 6.2 yards per place. Decent, but not like great. But we did have 306 yards on 37 plays, which is 8.2 yards per play in the first half to race out to that three score lead. And then the rain hit with like with eight minutes to go in the third quarter. And Curtis, you mentioned like we went to like ground and pound, right? At that point. Yeah. Well, here I actually went back and I counted up the numbers. Okay, so eight. I, I watched it on the re, on the replay, on the TV copy, and I saw literally when the rain started, and I timed this. Okay, right here the rain starts, and I count the number of plays that we ran from that point on. We ran twenty plays from that point on when the rain really hit right about right about the eight minute mark to go in the third quarter. Twenty plays from that point on, we ran the ball eighteen of those twenty plays from that point on, Curtis. We went in complete boa constrictor mode where we just want to like squeeze the life out of our opponent. We, this is what we do, guys. Like, this is our MO. This is nothing new. Now, sure, the rain probably had something to do with it. Of course it did. But this is kind of what we do. I mean, going back to last year, I mean, how many times have we talked about, well, you know, we get these big leads and we kind of just kind of grind the clock in the second half. And, you know, we, we like, we'd like to see Kirby go for the kill shot. And that's just not what we do. Well, that's just not what we do, right? Like we've told you for a couple of weeks now especially after this Florida game last week, we've finally offensively embraced who we are. And what we did is going back to last year, going back to 2019, going back to 2017. We throw haymakers early on offense. We get out to a lead. We stifle you on defense. And then once we get out to that big multi-score lead in the second half, we squeeze you to death and just chew clock. And that's exactly what we did. Now, would we have thrown the ball a little bit more if it wasn't raining in the second half? Sure, probably. But we still probably have the same game plan. We're trying to chew clock and just get out of there with a win. And that's what we do. And I know that frustrates some people because you want to see us, you know, beat them by three, four touchdowns. And I was as mad as anybody when they scored that garbage touchdown. But, I mean, I'm actually kind of encouraged by what we saw because, again, it's just another sign to me that we have finally embraced who we are on offense, the personal that we have. And this is the formula that I think that we have to follow the rest of the season. So, I don't know. You got anything else on the offense there? the biggest thing too is yeah we went into like that bow constrictor mode but i think a lot of it was due to that fumble by, by branson and at that point we were just like we're not going to really take a chance and give them a chance to get back in this game yeah i think you're right man i think kirby kirby's already kind of conservative by nature but don't you think that when that happened he's like all right i'm i'm just not even gonna like attempt i'm not i'm not i'm not gonna attempt fate at all right 
Well, and like I think another thing too goes with the offense and the defense. You're talking about how like their their O line was tired, and I think a lot of it had to do with Tennessee forever with their up tempo is hit the big plays. Well, we weren't giving up the big plays; we were making them drive the whole field at that high tempo, which is something they haven't had to do. That's a great point, man. That is a great point. And with that point, we're going to take one final break here today before we wrap things up. I want to remind you guys about our very good friends at Alumni Hall. All of the fall and the winter apparel, guys, it is in store and they're getting new stuff, it seems like, every single week. I just stopped in on Friday and got myself a new Nike full zip jacket. Needed something new for when the weather turns cold here, which might or might not ever happen. I mean, tomorrow it's supposed to be 83 degrees here in Athens, so might not be wearing anytime soon, but at some point... That weather will get consistently cold, and I want to be prepared. And the Alumni Hall is the place to get all your Georgia fall and winter gear. And when you make those purchases, you are also getting credit towards future purchases. So I have the Hall Pass Rewards program. All you got to do is very simple. Just give them your email address. And every single time that I buy some Alumni Hall, I rack up points. And for every $150 you spend in-store or online at Alumni Hall, you get $10 towards future purchases. I had $30 to spend, guys, with my credits there on Friday when I went to get this jacket. So I basically got like half off. And there's just no other Georgia retailer out there that does anything remotely like that. So make sure to check out Alumni Hall in-store inside the Epps Bridge Shopping Center here in the Classic City or online at alumnihall.com because Alumni Hall is where the Bulldogs shop. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from lips and ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from lips and ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. All right, Curtis, got a couple more things I want to talk about before we get out of here. You know, we don't usually do this on these recap episodes. We only talk about like individual specific big plays, like ranking, like what was the biggest play of the game? Because we usually blow teams out, and it's like, ah, you know, like, uh, whatever. But I, I think there were some huge plays, some huge moments in this game, Curse. I'm just curious. Like, I know I'm kind of putting you on the spot here, but if you had to rank, like, the top two or three plays in this game that really affected the outcome of this game against Tennessee, how would you rank those? I think I'm going to go, number one, the punt. I mean, just the what it did. I mean, yes, the defense capitalized and forced it into the sh- field, short field position, after, but I think that punt really got things going. Um, number two, I'm going to go with Keeley's pick because oh, once okay, again, so you have that number two. Okay. Yeah. And the reason I go with that high is after that, they didn't really take many deep shots, especially at Keeley. Like they were going short with him. Um, and then I believe number three, um, oh no, Keeley, because it was a 10 point swing. Yeah. Um, in my in my opinion, that's why I I go with him so high is the swing of it because then we I believe we go and kick a field I can't remember I think we kicked a field yes. goal yeah so and, 
Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, you're exactly. Yeah. Right. We, we we drove down that. So I, I I wish we would have managed the clock a little bit better there. That third yeah. down with the clock get too low. We should. I you got if you're goal to go in that situation, you, you need to give yourself time for three shots. In the end zone we gave ourselves shots for two. We probably would have scored, or maybe would have scored if we had that third shot. So, but we got the field goal, which is great. Gave us a three score lead going to halftime. Yeah, and then number three, um, I go with the stop of the defense on that one drive where they still got the first down after fourth and some after the face something. mask, fourth and a mile. Yeah, after the face mask. Oh my god, that killed And me. then the yeah. fact that they still bowed their necks and stopped them because at that point it it came down to possession and time, and they were running out of time after that. Because that, that that I believe that drive took seven minutes off the play clock, and they got no points yeah. out of it. Yeah, it was huge. That was massive. You're exactly right. It was huge. All right, I know I put you on the spot here, but no Jalen Carter forced fumble in the end zone. I mean, yes, that's a huge one, but I, I, I think the punt was the one that set it all up, and so I chose to go with that one instead. Yeah, I had, I, the only reason I asked you is I had a question um, on social media over the past, I don't know, day or so, obviously a day, um, asking me, like, what was the bigger play, Thorson's 75-yard punt or the Jalen Carter forced fumble? And you're exactly right, man. Like, in my opinion, I got to go Brett Thorson, 75-yard punt, because as big of a play as that was by Jalen Carter, and it was, oh, God, what? an incredible sight to see him back playing 45 plus snaps in this game, but that doesn't happen. We're not in the position for that to matter the way that it mattered without the Thorson punt. Right. Yeah. I mean, just like a punt from God, like from the clouds, man, like where did that come from? Just like when he off his foot there in the stands, I, I my my seats are in the end zone down there and dude, I like off his foot. I was like, Holy shit. Oh my God. Like as soon as he like, hit his foot, I was like, Oh my God, that might like, he might get out, back, out of the back of the end zone. I'm just an incredible kick by the Aussie. I did have Jalen Carter's forced fumble at number two um, because it's still a tight game at that point. Um, now, yeah. been, like, do you think, honestly, going back and, and seeing some replays now, was that a safety? I don't know how it wasn't. A thousand percent. Highway robbery. A thousand percent of safety. Not even close. Not even close. I mean, and again, I hate saying that phrase, but it's it fits here again. It's not even close, man. Like, dear God, thank God it didn't have an impact on the game, and now we can laugh about it. But dear God, how can you just how can you get that wrong, man? I mean, just can't get that wrong. But anyway, yeah, I actually kind of like your argument for Keeley and that interception as the second biggest play. I might like that, man, because I think because here's the team. thing: if Tennessee gets points they could have momentum going into and getting the ball back in the second sure. half. And that's why I think it killed any momentum they could have created. You're exactly right. Because it was a 21-6 game at that time. They're trying to make it a one-score game at half after we dominate the first half. And then that puts the pressure on us, right? They get the ball come out in the second half, right? But instead, yeah. we make it a three-score game at the half instead of it being a one-score game at the half. I think that you're right from a momentum standpoint. I mean, all the goodwill that we had built up, all the momentum that we had built up in that first half, it could have been almost all for naught to a degree if we if they score a touchdown on that drive. So I think that's huge, man. I want to stop here real quick, though, and give Keely Ringo some credit. You know, we haven't been hard on him. I don't think that's fair to say. But our DBs in general, him and Lassiter, our, our corners specifically, we said all year long, multiple times, where they have consistently been in phase, in position to make plays, like doing what they need to do, but just haven't made the play at the moment of truth. So I want to give Keely Ringo credit for making a play on the ball. Once again, in phase perfectly. Like you could not have played that better. That, I mean, that is like, of course, that's like NFL drill tape. You know, like that's like what you show, like that's what you show your player. Like, hey, this is what I want you to do. Like that's how good that was. Staying in phase, getting his head around, not getting stacked. Um, just an incredible play. But for him to make the play there in that moment, 
the way that he did was huge, man, because we we haven't been good at that. Like We've consistently been in phase with guys, but we're just not making those plays in the ball. So for him to do that, I want to give Keely a shout-out. You know, with guys, you know, one of the unfortunate things we have to do on this show, I hate doing it. It's kind of, you know, I don't say calling guys out, but I hate, you know, I don't like being critical of our guys. We try to be as objective as possible. But I also want to give them credit when they deserve it. And Keely, that was just a fantastic play. So I'll go with that argument, Curtis. Actually, I'll give you that. I'll, go, I'll give Keely the, that interception. I'll give that the number two spot. I'll go Jalen Carter, forced fumble for me at number three and to wrap things up Curtis I mean dear god man I could hand out about 25 different game balls today so I don't know how we're going to whittle this down but let's give it our best shot we got to hand out our game balls for the best performances of the game I'm going to let you take the honors off the tee box here man who gets your first game ball my first one goes to Javon Bullard I thought you know he's always been pretty good at stopping the run but I think pass defense has maybe been his biggest weakness and I thought he at all facets of the game especially coming up big with two of the safety blitzes I have to go with him yeah I, I love it yes two sacks seven tackles on the game um I got a huge plays by him he's so good he's such a tough little dude out there man sticks his nose in there against the run I also want to give Glenn Schumann some credit here calling the plays defensively we called that same blitz, that same star blitz. We're dropping the linebackers under his on, in his vacated area. I think at least three, maybe four times in that game. Two two times in the same sequence, same drive essentially. And they couldn't figure it out. That's fine. You know what? Sometimes coaches, Curtis, I think they they outthink themselves. You know what I mean? Like they don't get too fancy. I'm like, oh, it's worth this one time. You can't run it again. No, dude. I love the idea of like running it till they until they can stop it. And they show no ability to even recognize it, let alone stop it. So, yes, Javon, incredible. But also Glenn Schumann, tip of the cap, buddy. Um, all right, Javon Buller, I didn't think that's where you go first. He deserves one. You're right, he's on my list. I just didn't think you'd go there first. All right, I'm going to go um, – I'm going to stay on the defensive side of the ball here, Chris. I mentioned his name earlier. I'm going to go Jalen Carter, man. He's a definition yeah. of a difference maker. I mean, we are good on the defensive line with, without him. Like, we're still – like, relative to the rest of the country, we're still really, really good on the defensive line. But Jalen Carter is the difference maker. I mean, this guy is a top five NFL draft pick. I'm not an NFL guy, but I know enough about it to tell you that he's a top five pick. I mean, after playing, you know, I think fewer than 20 snaps, if I remember correctly, last against Florida, which is great to see him back. He's basically a third down guy against Florida and made some, it made some good plays for us there. This dude came out against Tennessee, played 48 snaps, Curtis, 48 snaps. And I was concerned about how much he would be able to play because the, the way that they run their offense with the tempo and they, they really make it difficult for defenses to sub. And so I was like, well, if he's on the field, he's going to be on the field for an entire drive. Hopefully we're getting off the field and these aren't long drives, but you never know. But for him to play 48 snaps, I mean, number one, it's just great for our team to have him back and, and able to play that many snaps. Number two, I think it shows you what this guy's made of. I mean, he easily could have shut this down, Curtis. Could have shut it down, gone to the NFL, done the whole like quiet opt-out thing. And nobody would have said anything. Probably wouldn't hurt his draft stock really at all. But he loves his team, loves his teammates. He's a competitor. He came out there, and he's still probably not 100%. I'm sure he's not 100%. He came out there and played 48 snaps in a huge game and made a hell of an impact. Two forced fumbles. One, certainly, like I said, it wasn't on your list, but it was on my list of the three biggest plays in this game. Just a, a flat-out monster. I mean, when he doesn't want to be stopped, I don't think you can stop him one-on-one. And even with two guys, sometimes you can't stop him. He's just... He is a freak of nature, and he is a difference maker. And if he'd been healthy all year, I mean, he'd been in the conversation for some of these, you know, um, these player of the year awards. But unfortunately for him, miss, you know, cheap shot, just ridiculous. But whatever, Missouri, that sucks. But he's back, and um, I think we are certainly better for it. All right, who gets your next game ball? Um, next one with Malachi Starks. Um, this was someone that I was very worried about, especially after that that lapse against Florida. But I thought he came out. 
and the reason I really go with him is I thought he made some really good open field tackles, which is what we had said is how Tennessee gets their big plays, yeah. making people miss. And I thought he did a great job in the open field and in the back end. Also, he, there are some plays, especially in the third and fourth quarter, where he came, I think it was in the third quarter, where he came up and got a big third down stop on a pass play. Yeah, you're exactly right. If, if we're going to play the style defense that we did with the game plan that we had of keeping them in front of us and kind of giving them those short intermediate passes, you got to tackle, man. And the entire defense did a great job of that. Valkai Starks, as a true freshman, was very, very good. I mean, early in the game, he just he's so fast. I mean, he's so athletic, closing on some of those guys. So he played an outstanding game. That's a good call there. All right, um, you know, I'm going to give the offense some love here. I know the defense was, was the story here, but let's give the offense some love. I'm going to go with uh, the man himself, Stetson Bennett Curtis. Final yeah, numbers, nice. yeah, got to, man. 17 and 25, not stellar, right? Like, not like blow you out of the water numbers. 17 and 25, 257 yards, two touchdowns, one rushing touchdown. But Curtis, more importantly, after um, certainly not his best game, maybe his worst game of the year last, last week against Florida, bounces back in a huge way. No interceptions, really no poor decisions. There was the one, was it the first drive where um, yeah, he he almost the ball the Darnell, it probably should have been picked by Jeremy Banks. Yeah. Um, but that was one of the bad decisions. The RPO was there. He just got to throw it over. He's got to throw a little higher. That was just a poor throw more than anything. Yeah. But, you know, again, we shut it down in the, in the second half. Like we just didn't throw the ball. I mean, but the first half, he was lights out, man. 15 and 21, 226 yards, three, touch, three total touchdowns in that first half. Accurate down the field. Again, three of five for 138 yards and a touchdown on throws of 20 or more yards down the field. He actually was the highest graded player on the entire team um, by Pro Football Focus, which if you buy into that kind of thing, I, I, you know, it is what it is, but just put it out there. Either way, how much stock you put in PFF or not, 85 PFF grade, highest on the team, pretty damn good. So Stetson Bennett falls up what I think is probably his worst performance of the year last year in Jacksonville. With, I don't know if it's his best performance, but just an awesome performance in the first half, and we kind of just glided our way to victory there in the second half. So I think he certainly deserves that and just led this team, got this team in the right place. So got to give Stetson a shout out there. All right, where are you going next? Um, Next, I want to go with Arian Smith. I mean, he had the big-time catch, and then I thought he just – there was a big thing of uh, – it felt like we were actually now scaring – or not scaring teams, but made teams have to worry about the deep ball. Yeah. For sure, man. Uh, I'm gonna go with another receiver here. I'm gonna go with Lad McConkey. You know, he's had he's had his issue. He's been hurt, guys. Lad has been hurt, not really. He didn't practice two days last week, but he comes out there and he plays his heart out. Five catches, 94 yards, touchdown. Uh, big plays, man. You know, obviously the big touchdown, the double move. What a, I mean, that's what I'm talking about. Lad's a guy that can actually create separation against man coverage. He can do that kind of thing. He did it last year against Auburn a couple of times. Um, also a couple of third downs that he was able to, to convert as a, a screenplay. It was a big play. He just goes out there, and makes plays for us. So huge performance by Lad. Curtis, I want to go honorable mention here. Are you cool with that real quick? Yeah. I'm going to go um, – we mentioned him. Brett Thorson. Come on. Brett Thorson deserves a game ball. Yeah, right? I think that's a good one. Yeah, definitely. I, I, not even honorable mention. He's just getting a game ball. Brett Thorson. The dude's only punted 22 times all year. But I don't care, man. That was the punt of a lifetime. A punt of a lifetime, man. So, Brett Thorson, the Aussie. Kirby called it a boomerang shot. Loved it. Awesome, man. Uh, anybody else you want to throw a shout-out to real quick? Yeah, I think Pop d- deserves one. I thought he did a great job. And he would him, I mean, him and Smile both, but just the inside linebackers, I think as a unit, did really well stopping the run. I'm with you, man. And I know this is, uh, this is cheating, but you know what? Who cares? I'm going to cheat anyway. I want to give a game ball to the entire secondary for how they – I know that we stopped the run well, but how they were able to defend and stay with these – I mean, guys, these are really good receivers. I'm not taking them away from Tennessee. I still respect Tennessee. They're a good football team. We're better. They're good. Those receivers are awesome. And our guys showed up and played their tails off and showed them what Georgia football is all about. So the entire secondary, as far as I'm concerned, gets a game ball. Anyone else for you? 
Nah, I think I'm all good. All right, I got one more. I'm just going to throw this out there, guys. I know that our team played lights out. Our guys, our players deserve so much credit. Our fans did a great job creating an awesome environment inside Sanford Stadium. Our coaching staff, the coaches themselves, assistant coaches who put together some of these plans, Todd Monken, Glenn Schumann, these guys work their butts off. They sacrifice time with their family. Now they get paid handsomely for it. They're still sacrificing time. They put in a lot of work. They all deserve credit. But I want to give a game ball to the head man himself. I don't think I've ever actually done this on one of these episodes, but I'm going to do it today. I think Kirby Smart deserves a game ball here because in a different way, I also think just like the Missouri win earlier in the year on the road was what I call a culture win, that we don't win that game under some of the other coaches that we've had in the past. God bless those guys. Love them all. But Kirby Smart has built this culture inside this Georgia program the right way. Our players are made of the right stuff. Now, that's partly well, the, the players that we get, right? Like, they are they have the right makeup when we recruit them. But that's also Kirby Smart and also our, our other coaches as well targeting those guys and bringing the right kind of guys in our program. And then once they get here, further developing them. Our program, guys, is built on an incredible culture. And we had some growing pains early on in 2016. We absolutely did. But we are now firmly on the other side of that and we are reaping the benefits of it. And I call this one a culture win, not because like we had to come back and we had to show resiliency in this game. Like, No, that's not really what I'm talking about. I'm talking about this being a culture win in the way that our players went about preparing for this game. It's what they did behind the scenes, the work they put in, the sacrifices that they make, the team attitude that they play with. None of that happens by accident. Yes, some of these guys bring those mentalities to a degree into our program, but it's further sharpened by our culture, and that culture is built by Kirby Smart. Just like every team that we play, it seems like every single week you hear the, the opposing players, the opposing coaches, and the post-game press conferences when asked about Georgia and, and why this was a difficult game and what happened, almost to a man, almost uniformly, they talk about the physicality with which we play with it, how it's just different. I mean, Jalen Hyatt said it straight up. Like, Georgia was more physical than Alabama, and we knew it coming in. We knew that was going to be the case, and it was, it was the real deal. That doesn't happen by accident. It starts at the top with the culture and the demands and the expectations set by the head coach. And it all filters down from there. The demeanor, the attitude, the discipline, all of these things that you see play on the field, but also the things that we don't see behind the scenes, Kirby Smart is behind all of that. And I think in this matchup, in this game with Tennessee riding high, coming off the uh, the first college football rankings where they're ranked number one, hey, when you haven't been there before, it's tough for your players to handle it. The Tennessee players were down there talking shit to the student section before the game. When's the last time you've seen a Georgia team do that? Go to the opposing team student section before the game and start talking crap. Never. You don't see it. Our team was better in this game. Our players are better. We have more talent, 1 through 85 on our roster. Our coaching staff is better. But another thing that we have that is superior to Tennessee is our culture. And Curtis, the outside of the episode, when I asked you how satisfying this win was, and your your first response was that you loved this because it was a sign that we aren't going anywhere, that we aren't just going to be one of these flash-in-the-pan success stories like LSU back in 2019 was. 
And I totally agree with you. But the reason why we are not a flash in the pan success story and that this program is here to stay and our success is sustainable is because of the culture that Kirby Smart has built. So that's what I mean when I say this is another culture win for our program on the biggest of stages that you will see in the college ball regular season. And if you ask me, I think I said a little bit earlier in today's show, if you ask me right now, November 6th, 2022, absolutely, I believe Kirby Smart is the best coach in America. There is not one single college ball coach out there anywhere in this country that I would take over Kirby Smart right now. And I know Nick Saban has more national titles. I know Dabo Swinney has more national titles. But if you're asking me for the next 15 to 20 years moving forward, who's the best coach in America? Who am I taking? It's Kirby Smart, hands down. And for the third time today, I'm going to say something that I normally don't like to say because it's overused, but it fits again. It's not even close. So hell yeah, go dogs! what a win. But guys, as great of a win as that was, we got to turn right back around and go into the ultimate trap game. Trap game extraordinaire this week in Starkville. So we'll enjoy this one for another day or so, but we are full speed ahead talking about Mississippi State the rest of this week. So make sure to come back for that, guys. Plenty of talk here. Mississippi State's a good team, guys. I'm telling you, they are a good football team. But thank you for being here, guys. We always appreciate you. I hope you guys enjoyed this one as much as Curtis and I did. But for Curtis, I'm Tyler. And as always, go dogs. <laughs>